Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar. And we are not in print. Louis Naurer is one of Australia's most successful writers. He has penned novels, crafted film scripts, authored two memoirs and worked as a librettist. But he is perhaps best known for his plays. Since the early 1970s, he has created over 30 stories for the stage. Several of them have earned a rightful place in the Australian dramatic canon and in our hearts. Today, we're here to talk about Cosy which was first performed in 1992 at the Belvoir Theatre in Sydney. It went on to win the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and has become one of the most performed and beloved Australian plays of all time. In one of his earlier works, Summer of the Aliens, Louis Nauer charted the journey of Lewis and Dulcie as they came of age at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. In Cosy, set in Melbourne in 1971, Lewis's education makes further progress. Lewis is a bit of a non-participant in life, but when he takes up an opportunity to direct a play at a mental institution for a bit of extra cash, he gets much more than he bargained for. He becomes emotionally involved with his actors' lives as his operatic production lurches forward. Louis, thank you for talking to us about Cosy. There's no way to discuss it without covering ground that's been mapped out already, so let's begin at the beginning. Cosy is semi-autobiographical, and in your foreword, Trial by Madman, you wrote that your own experience of directing a play in a Victorian mental institution had a lot of influence on Lewis specifically, but also the range of characters within the play. And one of the connections you felt with Lewis specifically was your first day of rehearsals. Instead of feeling cocky, you said you felt a great terror, facing so many faces, some earnest, some shy and some irritated, and you had a sudden realisation that you were responsible for these people. I wonder whether or not that responsibility transferred to your characters as you were writing it. I wrote Cosy in the early 90s. I, I shifted down to Melbourne and I was with my partner at the time and uh, she was psychotic and she had a lot of psychotic episodes and I was attempting to write a play and I thought, well, why don't I write a play about madness? Uh, both my grandmothers had gone mad. My mother was mad. She'd murdered her father. And so I thought, well, let's make madness funny. Humour works as a way of being victorious over the circumstances you're in. And when I was young and I was at university, I, I with a friend and I, we directed a show with mental patients down in Melbourne. I had never directed anything in my life. I had been in a street theatre group and I'd acted in a couple of plays. So even a young director just confronting student actors and seeing so many in front of him would feel a bit out of their depth. When you're confronting mental patients and it's the first time you're directing, two things are actually happening. One is you feel out of your depth. How do I direct? And What is direction? But the second thing is, is you look at these faces and they expect that you know what you're doing. And you know in your heart of hearts you have no idea. 
And the responsibility was also added because the social worker at the time, um, he went out of his way to convince the authorities that this was a good thing. Things wouldn't get out of control. And everybody was looking down on us from the authorities. They thought it was going to be a failure. But the whole thing was to try and get them out of their shells, as the cliche goes. So we had a, a tremendous sense of responsibility and unfortunately, it was trial by jury by Goodman Sullivan, which my friend wanted, and so did the guy who I call Roy wanted. And I loathed Goodman Sullivan. So I shoved in BG songs, Beatles songs, and songs I wrote myself. I also acted in it, played the clarinet when I was off stage. And the reason why I played the clarinet was because off stage, the pianist would sometimes fall asleep while he was playing, so I'd have to jab him awake all the time and play the clarinet so he'd wake up and go, that's terrible. <laughs> then I'd go back and sing. At the end of Trial by Jury, I remember all these patients, they'd put so much work into the play. And we had a curtain, the curtain went down, and everybody was jumping around and hugging and kissing one another at the end. And if you'd seen these patients at the beginning of the rehearsals, slightly paranoid, not going out of their way to help you, if you'd seen the transformation at the end, that was absolutely amazing. So I was after, really, how art could actually transform your life or transform the circumstances where you were or make you see the world in a different way. Um, crucial thing that I learned, and probably Lewis learns, is that there's a world of difference between theory and the reality of certain situations and working in a mental institution and you see the patients and you see them as people, you begin to understand that madness is a terrible thing, shocking, but you've gone a little bit further towards understanding it by having empathy with these people. They're not theory. So it made me more aware of the fragility of people. You said that madness both frightened and attracted you. Why is that? The difficulty with madness, as I noticed with my grandmothers, is I thought I knew them. When you're young, you want permanence. And you want psychological permanence from adults because you're looking up to them, you're learning from them. And when my grannies went mad and I would visit them in a mental institution, they weren't the same. One was a pyromaniac and I'd gone to st holidays with her and and the first day I woke up, uh, my clothes weren't there, nothing from my suitcase and everything. She was out the backyard burning them. And I walked out and she said, isn't this a lovely fire? And I was naked and I thought, well, to you it may be, but to me it's not. They're more my clothes. My other grandmother went mad after killing uh, cats and kittens, <laughs> which relates to Cozzy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> go burn a cat, it's not too far-fetched. Mm. And uh, my mother had murdered her father, a very famous court case, and mum wasn't the full quid. So the thing was, I didn't even know who my mother was, the same as my grandmother's. And, and so that, to me, madness represented impermanence and constant changes that entered that person's personality, and I couldn't deal with it. And at the time, there was a lot of trendy psychiatrists basically going, oh, madness is a phase you go through, you have to go through it. And I thought, have you ever fucking been through madness? Quite simply, if you work in a mental institution for four years, you're as mad as they are. There is no way 
that you can make a judgment because you're caught in a very claustrophobic, incestuous world yourself. Now, I'll give you in some productions of Cosy. I remember seeing a dress rehearsal and the cast came out playing their symptoms. That wasn't real people. And it was like a psychiatrist had come in and given advice, you know, and said, oh, because of that symptom, she'd behave like that. And that's not true. It's not true. Nobody plays their symptoms. They're trying to pretend they don't have the symptoms. Mm. Most mad people are not happy about it, you know. They know they're mad. They know they've lost control. Most people are just in pain in institutions. I'd really like to talk about the structure of the piece being a play within a play. We watch two sets of people on the same stage. One is real and the other is performed. And, of course, we have to ask ourselves, where does the emotional terrain of one play end and the other begin? And then considering we're in the world of an institution, what's real and what's delusion? And moreover, just because Cosy unfolds within a single physical space, it certainly doesn't mean that the ideas are contained. They're concentrated, but they're in flux. Was there a freedom that you found when writing because you had the option to play around with reality, unreality, a play within a play? It's always fun, but it has a serious side to it. I have a real problem in rehearsals. As I watch these actors work their way into the role and everything, they pretend to be somebody else, I, I find the very notion of pretense to be a bit unnerving. I'm okay when they're in costume, but the process towards that is really unnerving. The reality becomes rather shifting. It's uncertain, and this disturbs me. It's equivalent of my grandmothers going mad and changing their personalities, so I have a lot of problem with that. Ruth says at one moment when they're actually running through Cosi Fantute, so we're in an illusion of a garden carrying an illusion of tiny paintings. Shall I sit down and pretend I'm acting? Mm. <laughs> yeah. When I'm directing, I have a bit of problem with that. I think to myself, there's not a real garden. Now stop it, stop it. There's not a real garden. But it has to be a real garden because the character has to believe they're in a real garden. <laughs> stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> really, it's an eternal debate I have about liking and hating theatre. Mm. It's always been my constant debate about the enchantment of theatre, but the realisation that it's all fake. Mm. And that is always part of my debate, uh, especially in Cosy. Is, but then again, I realised the redemptive power of theatre when I was with Jim Sharman and the um, Lighthouse Theatre Company and the group is that you can have people who hate one another, don't get on with one another. They put on a show and, and if things work really well and it really truly works for an audience and everything, it bonds everybody. So it, it almost has a, it has a psychological dimension which is fascinating to me. Jerry Turcote wrote Mozart's Cosi Van Tutte is an inspired choice as the centrepiece for this drama. The enormity of the task makes the comedy stronger and the aristocratic nature of the opera, combined with its frivolity and sexism, play into the many issues the contemporary drama pursues. Can you tell us why you chose to place Cosi Fantute at the heart of your play? The most important reason was that Mozart's music is so good. The second thing is the plot of the opera mimics certain things that are actually happening on the stage itself or off the stage. But really, I wanted an opera that 
talked about serious things in a humorous way. Uh, Love and betrayal is serious. So the music is also telling the audience how to feel. Cherry explains it quite simply. She says this cosy tooty thing is just another thing about the battle of the sexes. Well, she sums it up really well. (laughs) (laughs) Is cosy that for you? No, cosy is, is about how do you connect with somebody else? What, what is it? And what is madness? And how theatre can help you by reinventing the self, by you playing another character, you're relieved of the burden of yourself. Do you think Lewis has become the embodiment of the belief that women are unfaithful by the end? Yeah, he's probably right. Um, (laughs) No, it's a generalisation, of course, but as it's raised in the play, there are some men who who just have to believe that their girlfriend or wife would be unfaithful because they want that to happen, Mm. to prove that they're right, to be suspicious. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, generally. Yeah. But no, that's only... as it were, the comic summation of it. In the first production, Justin, Nick and Zach were all played by David Field. Yeah. While Lucy and Julie were both played by Kerry Fox. Yeah. These characters are united by particular traits. In the case of Justin, Nick and Zach, these men are all institutionalised in their own way, be this by the social or the political systems of the time or by the mental institution itself. While Julie and Lucy's views on men and fidelity intersect at times, their ideas on love are quite the opposite. With such a large cast of characters, in order to establish a cohesive and yet an eclectic group, how did you create these similarities and differences between these people? This fabulous idea you had that we were playing with the concept of (laughs) David Field was given an extra part because we didn't have anybody else. (laughs) But we did talk to Kerry about... Lucy and Julie being similar and what are the differences and what does that mean to Lewis when he's looking at both? Yeah. What, what do they represent in his life about love and affection? I would argue that with Julie, she says of love, she's always thought that love was being foolish and stupid. It's about being on the edge and I like being on the edge, whereas Lucy sees love as well down the list of priorities in life. After bread, a shelter, equality, health, procreation. It's a parody of Bertolt Brecht, actually. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that they're both quite similar as well, though. I mean, yeah. which is obviously what Lewis is attracted to. There's differences which he's not getting from one that he gets from the other, potentially. Absolutely. But With Lucy, what he likes is that she's really smart. Um, strong. Uh, strong. And whereabouts Julie represents that wildness, that lack of responsibility, and it was based on a, a person who I knew, and she was a hairdresser, and she was fired from the salon when she took eight hours to cut a few hairs of one of the clients. Yeah, that's an amazing she, story. She, she was absolutely out of it, completely <laughs> out of it. And the client, an old lady, couldn't move because yeah. scissors could have jabbed her in the eye or jabbed her in the ear, so she was just eight hours. It's incredible. Yeah. On Men and Fidelity, though, where they do kind of come together... Julie says, I don't like men's double standards, I guess. Men want women to deceive them because it'll prove their worst thoughts about women. While Lucy says that men want women to pretend they're true and faithful because that's how they want us to be, even if they're not true and faithful themselves. The eternal dynamic between men and women is what you expect from the other 
gender, how you view them, and it's that warfare, which is Mozart's opera, really. Mm. And to me, that's funny, uh, and how one sees one another. And and also, I, I think with Julie, what you have to remember in those days is that any junkie, hardly any junkies at the time, were sent to a psychiatric institute. They didn't have what they now have as special institutions for junkies. And I have always felt in various productions or with the film that she does feel like the odd one out. And that's the feeling I wanted. When I was working in a mental institution, the junkies were looked down upon by everybody. It, it was the lowest of the low can be. So if you had a hierarchy in a mental institution, the drug is on the bottom. And the other thing, you hardly got to new junkies because the treatment was so bad that they generally ended up in a general hospital on drugs, you know, just uh, soporifics all, all the time is because nobody knew what it was to come down. It kind of links into addiction and obsession and kind of mania yeah. and depression, yeah. all those things. And that filters through a number of the characters. Julie, Zach, Roy and Henry, for example, I would, there's a mania. Well, the Roy character was exactly like that. When we used to have the news group, sit around reading the age and would discuss the events of the day and everything. Roy would sit next to Henry and any time Henry was to make a comment, Roy would literally just go whack, <laughs> just hit him and go, shut up, what would you fucking know? <laughs> and nobody could get a word in because Roy started to give his opinion of the news. He was a nightmare, couldn't control him. <laughs> and the only thing we could do was he couldn't play table tennis. So I used to get the news group and play a lot of table tennis. He was ropeable. <laughs> and that mania is... Something that's kind of adorable, and Roy is my favourite line. Look, what's so hard about learning Italian? Italians do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was exactly like the opening night, the stage fright. He was the one who was goading us all, Harry's a genius, and he got the stage fright. Mm. He's also kind of obsessed with this idea of being let down. He's always been let down. Yeah, which is constantly with Henry. Why do you always let me down? Yeah. Why do you, why do you always let me down? Everybody let him down. And the thing is that he had nobody visited him for about 25 years. Mm. He had nobody. Well, and in his case, he's deceptive or he's deceiving himself. Oh, yeah. About yeah. his parents. and He's absolutely deceiving himself. It's all, you know, it's all fantasy. Henry was in a much more difficult position because his parents were both lawyers, barristers, I think, mm. and he'd let them down. I mean, that's another link for me, the Roy and the Henry characters, there's a very specific fantasy about their parents or about their mothers. Mm. And Doug has a similar kind of issue with his mother. Yeah. <laughs> now, he was always it. threatening to burn down the community hall because we wouldn't give him the lead, um, the Doug character. Uh, and he'd been in for pyromania, but he was a wild card. He's also really aware, though, of his problem. Like he, yeah, his he, he, he was always aware of it. it it's yeah. just that when the dosages would come out during rehearsal, He'd pretend to have the dosage I noticed after a couple of days, but he wouldn't take it, hence the, the mania. And Roy would do exactly the same thing. He'd just put it on and spit it out. I find this mother thing interesting. Roy says his mother used to play the music to him of Cosy Fem 2D. And his dream really in this story is to recapture this idea of her for himself. Yeah. But, uh, see, this is difficult when a writer talks about this because you don't want people to go, oh, that's that's the meaning. And I try not to implant that on the cast when I'm working with the cast. I want them to find it. So 
what I'm going to say is it's not necessarily true about Roy, mm. but I've always thought he was brought up in an orphanage and there was probably some nurse or something who liked the Mozart. He'd heard the Mozart and it meant so much to him because maybe she was kind towards him. It's interesting to hear you say that because Cherry at one point talks about her father making her go out and collect dead birds that he'd shot as though she were a dog. <laughs> yeah. And Lewis believes her and then she says, I'm just joking. Mm. And then after Roy tells his story, which is very dreamlike and obviously sounds untrue, she then tells Lewis that actually he was brought up in an orphanage. But I always wondered maybe his parents were incredibly wealthy and they wanted to sure. put him under the carpet. Look, that's absolutely fine. It, it's about... Our theatre has endless possibilities that films doesn't have once it's been filmed. You can take it either way that it's true, it's brought up in an orphanage, or the other way, the point is, by this stage, they're trying to up one another. And what they're doing, what Cherry's getting off on, teasing Lewis. And the woman who, who I based Cherry on used to tell me the most outrageous stories like those, and I had no idea where she was coming from. But the thing for the Cherry character made her seem important. Yeah. You know, she would have told me any story as long as you know, I would take notice of her. Justin, the social worker, says at one point, they are normal people who've done extraordinary things, thought extraordinary thoughts. And I think that kind of points to what you were just saying. It's particularly true of Roy with this idea of the dream. And, but he says, we're making history. Australian history will bring culture to this place. In the same way that Nick and Lucy think politics is the real theatre, they're saying outside, and there's kind of a dual responsibility that they feel or a social responsibility. One of the things is they're not aware of the outside world. Yeah. Vietnam, what's happening in Vietnam sort of a question. Mm. So they're on an island. This is really metaphysically an island. And a lot of my plays put people on a real island or it's a psychological island because I'm very interested in how they relate to one another and who's telling the truth, who has the power. With Roy, the power is to tell these fibs or have this fantasy and everything else like that. The point is he wants to be in power. Yes. And Lewis has to learn power. The moment that he stops Henry from leaving, he's now gained some power in that relationship with the others. Yeah. Taking on this position in the mental institution is a turning point in this 21-year-old's life. You mentioned in Trial by Madman that in your real-life experience of working in the theatre within a mental institution, you had to get over being a do-gooder before you could really start enjoying the rehearsal process. Besides the obvious monetary rewards, Lewis, like you, he now finds himself in a place far removed from the political rhetoric of the anti-Vietnam War protests of the outside world. Is this a man in search of an escape, do you think, or is there an element of fortune at play in Lewis's It's a man thinking? in search of himself. He doesn't know what he's going to do in life. Lucy is more articulate than he is. Mm. She seems to have a purpose in life. Nick seems to have a purpose in life. Lewis doesn't. And one of the big steps he has to make is the moment that he, he starts to abuse the patients as you would a cast is he's forgotten they're mad. And that's a big step for him because they, they become people then. Yep. They become people and he realises, well, I don't seem that mad. But you see, what's actually happening to him, he has to test himself. And 
if you don't have a, a purpose around this age, you have a tendency to put yourself in circumstances where you hope the circumstances will give you a meaning mm. to what you want to do, if you get what I mean. He doesn't go to work with mental patients or anything. Simply he wants the money, uh, there's something to do, and it's just mental patients. So he's what Saul Bellow said was a dangling man. Mm. So he finds a purpose through these mental patients. Mm. You see, they become real people to Lewis, to Lucy and Nick. These people are still mental patients. And Lucy actually even points at it. She says, working with these people has changed you. Mm. But she doesn't think it's a good thing. She says, we used to talk about things, important things. Now all you talk about is reactionary drivel. like The other thing to remember is that they've become more real, more interesting than Lucy and Nick to him. So in a way, it's a kind of maturity that Mm. is happening with him. Do you think this experience with these particular people has reshaped Lewis's view of the world? Does he end up having a concept of who he is and where he wants to go now? I don't think he does at the conclusion of Cosy. You see, originally this was going to be a trilogy. Mm. It was some of the aliens with Lewis, Cosy with Lewis, and then there was going to be another play called Scythera, which is the island of love. And so it was going to progression to find love, and I never finished the third one. I think love is absolutely important in life. I think it makes humans more interesting. It gives you the sense of you're connected to another human being in almost a spiritual way sometimes. Mm. Well, I wanted to talk to you about love, actually, and in Cosy, it's not pure, it's not simple. It's misunderstood, it's mercurial, it's often undermined, and sometimes in Cherry's case, it's even a bit frightening. But (laughs) despite all of that, Cosy reminds us that love has a purity and offers great nourishment to all if they're ready to embrace it. And my favourite example of this is when Lewis asks Roy if they should perform Cosy Fantote at all while the Vietnam War rages. And he says love is not so important these days. And Roy stares in disbelief and asks, what planet are you from? Clearly there's a philosophical divergence here and I just wondered if you could expand on it for us. To Roy, that's really, really crucial to him. That whole dream that his mum gave him, you know, Cosi Fantute, that's love. That's, that, that's love. And, and to him, that's greater than any... And Roy's right. That's greater than any ideological view of life. This is uh, an idealised view of love coming out of Mozart and coming out of Roy. This is a a concept that goes beyond the body, goes beyond lust. It's something greater and almost religious. And I, I know that one shouldn't refer to the times it was written in in some respects to justify some of the ideas, but... When I was at university, the political changes of the time were really important and and girls dressed down because they wanted to be considered serious. And so you didn't have this highly eroticised culture that we've got now. So for Lewis to say, look, actually Vietnam is probably a bit more important than love. People are dying in Vietnam. They're being killed and everything was, was pretty much the standard line of the times. Love came very much second. It was considered bourgeois. Society comes first. The individual and love comes second. Everyone has a take on it, though, and I find some of them really interesting and poignant and true. 
Julie says, "Love is not divine madness, like some people think. There's no such thing as divine madness. Madness is just madness. Love is hallucinating without drugs, which is coming from her quite a sad thing to hear because I think we can safely say that there's some part of her that doesn't love herself. Sure, and it's what the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed love was madness. The thing is, you either embrace it." as something wonderful and even sometimes destructive or, 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 or go, I'm not going to go that way because it is like going mad. Of course mm. it is. Two people are going mad together. Lewis's final monologue is a direct address from the actor to the real audience, although it's Lewis addressing the real audience, yeah. which is kind of... Yeah, it's a metaphysical nightmare, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, it's getting to me. I was hoping I was subtly telling the audience, he's now in control. Yeah. He's in control of the lights and everything. He's actually matured through this journey. He would never, I always, you know, when Ben and I were talking, Ben Mendelsohn and I were talking about the character, I said, Ben, that's the journey. You would never have been able to address the audience in the beginning and tell about these people because you've learned about these people. You, you love them. You're affectionate towards them. And you're in control of the lights. You're, 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 you're now your own man. Mm. And it was as simple as that, yeah. Do you find now, looking back on it, that it's, you've grown or you've learnt or you've understood yourself in a different way? When I've seen it, I like its affection. And to me, when I see a good production, it conjures up those moments is when I began to fall in love with the patients. Yeah. And that's when it works really, really well, that sense of affection. So people aren't judging one another. That to me is the essence of it all. Louis, thank you so much. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. Thank really you. Brilliant. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Not in Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This episode was recorded in Sydney. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Corbett.